offering, and we will be finishing up this very long opening sentence to the book of Ephesians as we focus on verse 13 and 14 this morning from the Apostle Paul. Follow along with me as I read. This is the word of the Lord. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, pray that the spirit that you have sent to dwell within each one of us would teach us your truth. Lord, that your spirit would awaken our hearts and our minds and our souls and our being to your working. Father, for those that don't know you, Today would be the day that they turn and believe in you through your word. Lord, help us to understand how you are working out your plan and why you are working out your plan, that we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Over the last couple of weeks in Ephesians here, we've been working through this tension of understanding the mystery of God's will and the mystery of God's plan, and this tension that exists between God's sovereignty and Him working all things according to the counsel of His will, and human responsibility, which is our portion of it. Well, here this morning, we are going to wrestle more with the second half of that on our responsibility. Before we do so, a professor at Calvin College characterizes the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility this way. He writes, I liken them, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling only to one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, His chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, only 
one piece. And so it is this morning that we are going to pull on one half of that rope, focusing on what is our involvement in this action, in this work of God's eternal plan from before the foundation of the world. We're going to begin by examining the question, just exactly how do we become God's people? How is it, what are the mechanics of how this actually works out? This eternal plan from the fullness of time before the foundation of this world, how does this actually get worked out in an individual person's life? And that is our focus this morning. What we've seen over the last couple weeks about how we become God's people is that it is not by chance It is not by our choice, but by God's choice. But it is that that we are chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we are chosen by God in Christ to be holy and blameless. That we have been predestined for for adoption as sons to receive the inheritance of sons. And all of this occurs according to the purpose of His will, the purpose in which God had purposed and determined to unite all things together in Jesus Christ. But we are not inactive in this process. In fact, the Bible makes clear that there are some specific things that we do, indeed that we must do, in the outworking of this plan. First one that we see here in, the, in these last couple of verses of Ephesians, of this, of this very long sentence, verses 13 and 14, the first thing that the text tells us that we do is that we hear the gospel. Look at verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What do we do? We hear the gospel. We hear the good news of salvation, that in Jesus Christ, we who are sinners can have our sins forgiven through the death and resurrection of Christ and life eternal and life abundant found in Him. In Him, we become adoption, and all of this through our faith in Jesus Christ, this good news of the gospel. But our hearing the message, our hearing the gospel is necessary for us. Notice Paul makes this point explicitly clear again in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. He writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach without preach unless they are sent. Do you follow the order of logic that Paul lays out here? The necessity of each of these human actions. How are people to be united to God in the fullness of time? It comes through their hearing, comes through their believing. Well, where does that belief come from? That belief comes from their hearing. Well, where does that hearing come from? The hearing comes from someone proclaiming. Where does that proclaiming come from? It ultimately comes from someone being sent to proclaim the message, which is why it's important for us as a church to raise up and to send out missionaries and, and preachers and teachers, and why not only to do that vocationally, but also why you individually, as an individual Christian, why it is necessary for you to speak the gospel. 
because by speaking the gospel, other people would hear the gospel, and by hearing, they would believe, and by believing, they would be saved. But hearing is necessary. And the God who planned the ends, that we would be chosen in him before the foundation of the world, also planned the means. And the means by which God brings about his choosing, his saving people, part of those means is people hear the gospel. Now, there's this famous saying that says, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. By St. Francis of Assisi. There's two problems with this quote, and of course you get the sentiment of it, which means that your life needs to be lived for, for Christ. Like your life, you need to be a witness for Christ. There should be nothing inconsistent in you, that there should be something attractive about the way that you live your life. And we certainly affirm that. But there's two problems with this quote. Number one, Francis never said this. In fact, it wasn't attributed to him. He wasn't, it didn't show up until I think four or five centuries after his death that people started to say that Francis said this. But Francis, there's no record that Francis ever said this or ever wrote it. The second issue related to this one is it doesn't make sense. Preach the gospel if necessary, use words. The gospel means good news. Preach, proclaim the good news. There is no proclamation of good news if there is not a proclamation of good news. There's something fundamentally necessary is that people need to hear the good news. You would not intuitively look at the life of a Christian and say, ah, oh, yes, there is a creator of the world, and people are sinners, and they are, they, are, they are separated from God, and because of their sin, they cannot save themselves. But God, in the fullness of time, sent his son to come down this earth, fully God, fully man, to come to a person, save this person, draw them to their soul by faith in Christ. After Jesus resurrected from the grave, they would have new life, life abundant, adopted, and a new life eternal. You would not gain that by simply observing the life of the most God-fearing Christian is that people understand the good news of Jesus Christ by hearing the message being proclaimed to them. This should be a great encouragement to you, an, encourage, an encouragement to you to speak the good news because speaking the good news, the gospel, is part of God's plan. It is part of God's plan to unite people to himself. And if it's part of God's plan, what this means is that you and that Christians, Christians are guaranteed success. I mean, imagine this, that before the foundation of the world, God actually designed that he would use you and use me through your speaking the words, through your speaking the gospel. God had planned that somebody by your speaking would hear that they would hear, and then by, by hearing, they would, be, they, would, they would believe. But what is necessary is that people hear the gospel message and that we hear it as well. So what's the first thing that we do is we hear the gospel. Then after hearing the gospel, we believe the gospel. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what's necessary? It is necessary to believe. That faith and belief are absolutely foundational to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here you see the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and both of these things being pulled together, particularly laid out in this passage. Because people 
their, the reality of God choosing them, of their receiving salvation, of their, their adoption becoming uh, official, of them being united to Christ in the fullness of time, all of these things happen when, at what point in time, at what point in time does God's eternal plan become a present reality in an individual person's life? It happens when they hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. Which is why the thing that is necessary is for people to hear the gospel and then to believe it. Jesus makes this clear. He was asked the question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Not that your belief is meritorious, but what happens is that your belief is what is necessary for to be united to God and to have a relationship with him. Again, Jesus declares, he went about declaring that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, at, at the, the apostles, they picked up the message of this. They were confident of the fullness of God's plan and the outworking of God's plan. And because they were so confident that God was working his plan, they went through towns and villages saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. A response on your part is necessary for a relationship with God. And if you are here and you're not a Christian and you've been here last week and maybe the week before, don't get bogged down in the mystery. Don't get bogged down in the mystery of, well, if God really chooses people, he chooses people, then they believe. And those who believe, then they choose. Well, if I'm not really believing, does that mean that I'm not chosen? So why should I really do anything? And if it's really all about God, why do... Don't get bogged down in that stuff. The thing that is essential is for you to look at these foundational truths and to believe in the gospel. This truth and to recognize that, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I cannot save myself. Yes, there is nothing in me that makes me right with God. The only thing that makes me right is Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And so I believe in what Christ has done and that it is true for me. And for those of you here today who are not Christian, here is the supernatural thing that happens. Is that God supernaturally uses your hearing the gospel to generate belief so that you would be saved. And that you would be redeemed. We hear, we believe. Third thing that happens is laid out in this passage is we hear, we believe, and then what happens to us is that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. In Him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It is an action of the Holy Spirit. It is passive on our part. And Paul goes on to use three different descriptions of the work of the Holy Spirit, all aspects of sealing is that the seal of the Holy Spirit authenticates our faith. It says you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. A seal was a mark of ownership. It was a mark of authenticity. Cattle and livestock were branded, marked with the seal of their owner. Kings in ancient days and in biblical times and emperors, when they wrote a letter, to authenticate that the letter was truly from them, the king would seal it with his signet ring and place the seal upon the letter. For Christians, it is not an external sealing like being braided. Rather, it is an internal sealing through the Holy Spirit, done by the Holy Spirit, not done by us. 
And here is part of the mystery. The seal of the Holy Spirit on your life is your belief in the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. These two things are two sides of the same coin. The seal of the Spirit is your belief in Jesus Christ. You have belief in Jesus Christ because you have been sealed by the Spirit. And the sealing of the Spirit authenticates us as truly included in Christ. It secures our eternal safety and marks us as God's possession. These two things go together. Belief in the gospel and sealing by the Holy Spirit. You cannot have one without the other. On the one hand, belief is very natural. It is something that I do. I either believe it or I don't. At the exact same time, belief is something that is completely supernatural by the working of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that anybody's belief is a supernatural working of God's Spirit. Namely, because natural people don't believe the things of God. The Word of God tells us that we, we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves, that, that we cannot be good enough for God, that we cannot get ourselves right for God. Natural people don't believe that. That's foolishness. We, we believe that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ, that he lived a sinless life, that he lived the life that we should have lived, that he died the death that we should have died so that we could have a life that we shouldn't, shouldn't have. Natural people don't believe that. That only comes from the Holy Spirit working faith and belief in you. The Bible teaches that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and that due to the greatest injustice of all times, the Son of God being crucified in your place and my place, our sins are forgiven. People don't believe that. The Word of God tells us that those who are in Christ Jesus have been loved before the foundation of the world, that they've been adopted as sons into the family of God with an eternal inheritance. The Word of God tells us that Jesus Christ rose victoriously from the grave, that in Christ Jesus you have freedom, you have purpose, you have assurance, you have confidence, you have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Natural people don't believe that. All of that comes because of the Holy Spirit working in you in generating faith, generating belief, authenticating it, and sealing it upon you. Your belief in the gospel is evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. Your belief in the gospel is evidence that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Brian Chappell states it so eloquently. Thus, we do not test the authenticity of our faith by the perfection of our performance, but our belief in the necessity and provision of Christ concerns that we could not have apart from his spirit within us. So have you ever wondered whether or not you have the Holy Spirit? Well, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, is what the text is telling us. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. How do you know that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Because there is evidence of belief. That the, your, the, your sealing of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by your belief in the gospel. The two things go together. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit in his sealing authenticates our faith. Second description that he uses about the work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit fulfills God's promises. You are sealed with 
the promised Holy Spirit. Is that God promises to give the Holy Spirit to everyone who believes, which he does. But God promised that he would do this some 2,600 years ago. He promised that he would do this 600 years before the birth of Jesus. He says in Ezekiel, God declares, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus iterates the same thing in his own ministry. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. What is Jesus declaring John 14 through, through chapter 16, lay out this whole working of the Holy Spirit? What Jesus declares, he's saying, listen, I am going to send my Holy Spirit to you to be with you and to dwell with you. How should this encourage us? It should encourage us is that when you see people who believe the gospel, you should look at that and say, wow, God is true to his promise. When we as a church celebrate people who come to faith in Christ and celebrate you know, baptisms for people who have recently converted, we should look at that and say, wow, 2,600 years ago, God said he was going to do this thing right now, that he would send the Spirit into a person's life, into people's lives, so that they would believe in him. Wow! Jesus Christ said that he would send the Holy Spirit and that those who he sent the Holy Spirit to would turn and would believe in him. You should look at that and say, look at this, the promises of God are true. Again. And if they're true in this instance, I can be assured once again that they're true in all other instances as well. The Holy Spirit fulfills God's promise. The third description that's used to describe the sealing work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. Guarantees our inheritance as sons, verse 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. The word here for guarantee is the reference for a, a financial guarantee, a guarantee that secures someone's ownership. It's a guarantee like a, a down payment on a house, that when you put a contract on a house and you finally make the down payment, there is a securing of ownership, and that down payment is the first installment of the purchase price. But the inheritance, or the, what it, the, it, it is the first installment of the purchase price. And what Scripture is declaring is that your inheritance is secure. Your eternal inherit, inheritance in Christ, your eternal inheritance in Christ is secure. Why? How do we know it? Because the Holy Spirit is himself is the guarantee. There are enormous spiritual blessings, but you can begin to experience them now because you have the deposit of the Holy Spirit upon you, and you can begin to experience the working of the Holy Spirit and the continued working of the Holy Spirit until we acquire the full possession of it when we see Jesus face to face. 
Well, what do we do with these assurances? These assurances that in Christ you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That through belief in Jesus Christ you are sealed by the Spirit and your faith is authenticated. That your faith in Christ is actually the fulfillment of God's promises. That the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of your eternal inheritance. What do you do with these assurances? Is hopefully they encourage you tremendously. For the struggles in this life that you must go through while you live here. The heartache. The suffering. The disease and the illness. The brokenness that you must face in this life would be unbearable. They would be unbearable apart from these assurances. Now, there was some years ago, before cell phones were prominent, before St. Mary's County had coverage, rather, before GPS, when we were in the woods and we got lost. And we got really, really, really lost. So lost, the hike should have taken an hour. It took us like six hours. In November, it was foggy. We were in shorts and T-shirts. It was foggy. It was misty. It was raining. And we were hiking for hours before we even knew we were lost. And so finally, as we're getting freezing cold in the midst of this, um, decided, I said, you know what? St. Mary's County, it was about 7 o'clock at night. St. Mary's County isn't that big. We're going to pick a direction and go. Eventually, we will run into, into something. And so we were struggling through thorn bushes and brambles and tripping over things, couldn't see anything. It was dark. The fog was surrounding us. And eventually, when we come, came over a hill, there was a light that we saw in the distance. And seeing the light in the distance, it took a little bit of while to figure out exactly where the light was coming from. But even though when we saw the light in the distance, all of a sudden one thing became very clear, which was now we were home. Now we were home. I mean, of course, we still had to trudge through the thorn bushes and the brambles. Sure, of course, we would trip and fall several more times. And yeah, we did have to have that awkward thing of going up and knocking on some stranger's door who we never knew and trying to get help from somebody and then having to walk several more miles and all those different things. There was still a journey ahead of us. But when we saw the light, we knew that we were not, we, we knew that we were not lost. When we saw the light, we knew that we were home. Similarly, that's what these truths do for us in our own lives, is that there are struggles and hardships that you have faced, that you will face, and indeed that you even must face in this life. There are thorn bushes and brambles and things that you will go through that will cut you badly, and you might even bleed profusely. But if you know, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you believe in Christ, if you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are home. If you believe in Christ, you've been sealed with His Spirit. The promises of God have been fulfilled in you and will be fulfilled in you. And the Holy Spirit is a down payment guaranteeing, therefore, that what you face in this life is not without purpose, but part of the working of God's eternal plan. And it is a guarantee that what is most important in this life, no matter what you must face, what is most important, most essential, is not at risk. Because you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
and you have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit upon you. How do we become believers in Christ? How do we become united, adopted as his children? We hear the gospel. We believe the gospel. And we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But I want to take a minute and let us just take a step back and ask the question, why? Why? Why does God do this? This passage, as we've been working through this over the last several weeks, has, has a phrase that is stated several times that I haven't been able to address yet. And it addresses the big question, which is why does God do any of this to begin with? We see it in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance. Why? To the praise of his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Why? To the praise of his glory. Why does God do this? Why do we become God's children? For God's glory. That the chief purpose for us is to praise his name. That we would live our lives to give glory to God. In words and in our actions, in the lives that we live, it would testify to God and give him glory. That we would also cause others and encourage others to give God glory and to come to know him and to praise him and to worship him too is that everything about us, everything that we do, should be lived for the promotion and the expansion and the declaration of the glory of God. That is your purpose, to live for His glory. Does that ever rub you wrong? That your entire existence is lived for the glory of another. That everything that you do is so that somebody else would be glorified and honored. Does that ever rub you wrong? It did me for a long time, until I understood two things. The first thing I needed to understand was, number one, that God deserves the glory and I don't. And that all that I have, all that I am, all that I can do, all that I ever will do, is wholly and only the working of God's grace and His grace and mercy to me. I have no claim on anything. I have no claim on my initiative, my productivity, the good things that are in my life, the things that are there. Everything that I have, am, can be, and will be is wholly the, act, the work of God's grace. God alone deserves the glory, and I don't deserve any of it. I had to wrap my mind around that truth. The second thing that I needed to understand is that just the nature of glory. Is that all glory that we experience, all human glory is derived from a greater glory. All individual glory is derived from something greater. Let me give you a couple examples of this to explain this. There was a member of our church some years ago who did two tours with the Blue Angels. And that seemed to be part of his name. Because when anybody would mention this person, they would say, hey, do you know him? He did two tours with the Blue Angels. It was like just rolled off his tongue. And granted, he did them at midpoint in his naval career. But that was what he was known for. Have you met this person? He did two tours of the Blue Angels. Now, why was that significant? Was it significant because he was an incredible crew chief, which he was? Absolutely. He was a great crew chief. But the reason why it mattered was because he was a crew chief for whom? Something greater. He was a crew chief for the Blue Angels. And because he was a crew chief for the Blue Angels, everyone was like, wow, check that guy out. He, he did two tours of the Blue Angels. He supported something greater. 
And the reason why his work was significant is because he improved or maintained the effectiveness, the greatness of the thing which is greater than him. Let me give you another example. Fortunately, in this community, blessed to know many people who have very distinguished naval careers, very distinguished military careers. And as you go to various retirement ceremonies and people are given the credit for the, the service in their career, which they're rightfully due, and they talk about all the great things that they've done, what makes what they've done great? What makes it remarkable? The reason why it's remarkable is because they have increased the glory of the Navy. They have increased the mission effectiveness of the Navy. They have increased the, they have helped the Navy be better. They have increased the renown of it in order to be more effective, to be greater than itself. They have promoted something that is bigger than themselves. And so they have a remarkable career. Why? Because they devoted themselves to a greater cause. And the individual recognition that they have comes from the fact that they were devoted to something greater than themselves, or their fame became from something greater than themselves. Consider several other examples. Babe Ruth. Why was Babe Ruth significant? Because he set the bar on home runs. Would anybody care if Babe Ruth set the record for home runs in the community softball league? Not at all, right? And so the reason why Babe Ruth is regarded as one of the greatest of all times and has the record is because in what he did, he increased the glory, the wonder, the challenge of Major League Baseball. So much so that every slugger at the beginning of every season is wondering, am I going to be the one that's going to break the record? Am I going to be the one? that is going to achieve the level of greatness? Am I going to increase the renown and the legend of what is going to, what has gone on here? Similarly, take LeBron James and, Mike, and Michael Jordan. Would there be a debate about who was the greatest? Would people really care if they were the greatest basketball players who ever played in the Kazakhstanian Basketball League? Would anybody care except for the people in Kazakhstan? Not at all. And the reason why it's significant is because their greatness comes from the fact that it is the National Basketball Association that they did this in, and that they increased the renown and the wonder of the National Basketball Association, that they have set the bar, that every other, everybody else is working to achieve to get that level because they have been devoted and they did something that promoted something that was greater than themselves. Any individual glory that a person experiences is always derived from something greater. And it is because of that greater glory that they themselves have in. What does this mean for us? It means that the greatest glory that you can gain in this life, you personally, comes from living for and promoting the glory of God Almighty. Because there is no one who is greater. There is no being who is higher. There is no thing more glorious. And since God is the be-all, and since God is overall, and since God is the end all, there is nothing more gracious by him or more necessary for us than to live wholeheartedly for his glory and not for any other counterfeit. The Christian life begins and ends with God to the praise of his glory. Everything that we have and are begins with God and returns to God. Yet, such Christian talk 
comes into violent collision with the man-centeredness and self-centeredness of the world. Fallen man, imprisoned in his own little ego, has an almost boundless confidence in the power of his own will and an almost insatiable appetite for the praise of his own glory. But the people of God have at least begun to be turned inside out. The new society has new values and new ideals. And God's people are God's possession, who live by God's will and who live for God's glory. How do we become God's people? By hearing, by believing, by being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why do we become God's people? For His glory. And so may we live secure in our faith, and may we live wholly for the glory of God. Pray with me. Father, you are the eternal, supreme being. There is no one and no thing who is greater or more glorious or more powerful than you. Lord, to you alone belongs all praise, all glory, and honor. Lord, may our lives give you all praise and glory and honor because you alone, Lord, are worthy of it. And so, Lord, may our lives be lived for you. And, Father, for those here today who are wrestling with what do they believe, Lord, with the hearing of your word, plant the seed of belief that people in turn would believe and be saved. Lord, would you supernaturally go before these brothers and sisters gathered here so that in the fullness of your plan, you would use the speaking of your word through them so that others would hear, and by hearing they would believe, and by believing they would be saved. Lord, you chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Lord, you chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so, Lord, would you use the weakness of our efforts? Lord, would you use the frailty of our words to bring about the redemption of your people? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.